Hello and welcome to Sinobabble, the Chinese history podcast. This is episode four of the 20th Century China series. And in today's episode, we'll be picking off just where we left off at the beginning of the New Republic of China. We spent the previous two episodes mainly talking about the revolutionaries and the revolution, and particularly Sun Yat-sen. But as we discovered at the end of the last episode, it wasn't actually Sun's destiny to lead China into the brave new world. That honour actually belonged to another man. We haven't really talked about Yuan Shikai up to this point, other than to discuss the fact that at one point he was dismissed by the Qing government and then later on begged by the Qing government to save them and eventually run the whole country. He wasn't a leader of any revolutionary group like Sun, and he wasn't a famous reformer like Kang Youwei. He wasn't even a member of China's new business elite. So who exactly was he? Yuan Shikai was born in Henan province in central China in 1859 to a typical landed gentry family. He took a fairly typical route for a late Qing youth. He tried and failed to pass the provincial examinations, purchased a minor official title and ended up joining the army. He served for many years in Korea, trying to help manage the Japanese expansionist aims in that region and even serving as the Chinese commissioner for Seoul for a time. He luckily escaped the horrors of the Sino-Japanese War in 1894, however, and was instead appointed by the Qing government to train up a new modern force with a huge budget. He played a key role in suppressing both reformers of the 100 Days Reform Movement, like Kang Youwei, as well as the anti-foreign boxers that we spoke about in episode 1. He was awarded the position of Viceroy, the first Han Chinese to be awarded such a position under the Qing dynasty, as well as being made governor of Hebei and minister of modern-day Liaoning and Shandong provinces. It was here that he set about training up one of China's most important military forces, the Beiyang Army, which he staffed with his own protégés, whilst also developing the region through reforms in local governance, education and public security. He became very close with the Empress Dowager Cixi and was actually one of the people who advised her to abolish the civil service examination system in 1906. As we discussed in the previous episode, after the death of the Empress Dowager, his enemies in the Qing court sought to get rid of him. Of course, they practically begged for his help once the revolution kicked off, but through a series of double bluffs and basically biding his time, Yuan managed to come out on top ahead of both the fallen regime and the spiritual leaders of the new republic. Despite what any of these parties initially thought of Yuan, it was clear that no one really understood his true ambitions until it was too late. It's very likely that Yuan did not originally intend to become a dictator, but like many people who gain access to high levels of authority very quickly, the temptation of absolute power proved too great to resist. It was clear he was afflicted with some level of delusions of grandeur even before this incident, however, as evidenced by the fact that he had one wife, nine concubines, and over 30 children. Unfortunately, Yuan had bitten off a bit more than he could chew with trying to run the entire of China, and so ended up falling from grace just as quickly as he had ascended. In any case, as we saw from the assessments of the 1911 revolution that we looked at in the last episode, even though the communists and the nationalists disagreed about who the heroes of the revolution were, it seems that all Chinese agree that Yuan Shikai is the villain of the story. So now we know a bit more about Yuan Shikai's background. For the rest of this episode, I want to talk about the first years of the Republic of China, namely the years 1912 to 1919. 
The first years of the Republic were very messy and can actually be really confusing to try and understand, but I want to try and give as good an outline as possible so that we can understand exactly what took place that caused China to go from being a unified almost Republic to falling back into a state of warlordism that hadn't been seen for over a thousand years. This period saw neither the remaking of China into a brand new modern Republic, nor the transformation of Chinese society. But it was an important transitionary period that kept the spirit of the revolution alive and saw enough change amongst China's newly reformed urban elites as to foster the introduction of some new ideas that led to another explosive moment in 1919. On March 10th, 1912, Yuan Shikai became president of China and at the same time, a parliamentary system was set up with a cabinet to oversee the legislative, judiciary and executive features of the new republic. The first government was a provisional one, and the idea was that democratic elections would take place that would see elected men replace both Yuan as president and the temporary prime minister, and install a new majority party in the cabinet. In the same month, a constitution was drawn up that guaranteed equal rights for all citizens, freedom of assembly and worship, and an outline for a full parliament that was to be elected later that year. The parliament was to have two chambers, an upper house, the senate, with members from each province and some representing overseas Chinese, and a House of Representatives, with around 600 members elected for three-year terms. Sun Yat-sen's revolutionary alliance, the Tongmeng Hui, reformed to become the Nationalist Party. They absorbed many other smaller groups, losing some of their revolutionary zeal in the process. While the Nationalist Party, or KMT as they're frequently referred to, focused on consolidation and administrative unity, other problems with the idealistic democratic system began to emerge immediately. The first problem that arose with China's new republic was the number and nature of democratic parties that emerged. Around 312 parties were formed just after the founding of the republic, 82 of which were based in Beijing and 80 more based in Shanghai. Most of the parties had little to no platform, failed to gain influence on a national scale, and served only the interests of a few local actors. Many were formed on the basis of personal interest and were completely self-serving, while others were set up to represent the interests of specific groups, such as merchants or landlords. Parties were set up by celebrities, businessmen, bureaucrats, and garnered no loyalty, with many parties seeing people join and leave on the same day. The second major problem revolved around the issue of suffrage. Voting rights were severely limited, so only around 40 million people, or 10% of the population, were eligible to vote. Despite their sacrifices in fighting for the revolution, their donations to the Revolutionary Alliance, and their protests that led to the vandalism of Parliament, women were denied the vote altogether. Misconduct was rife, with parties using all sorts of tactics, from buying votes to intimidation to try and get ahead. Voting culture was new to China, so it's entirely possible that acts of bribery would have been seen as acceptable or even a necessary part of the process. The final and probably most important problem that emerged was the inability of the cabinet to limit Yuan and his Beiyang warlord's powers. Yuan Shikai had not bothered to form a political party, instead building a network of northern warlords amongst his Beiyang forces and choosing to exercise power through military force. That Yuan Shikai dominated the provisional cabinet by mid-1912 was obvious to most, and was strongly criticised by Song Jiaoren, the man Sun Yat-sen had appointed to take over leadership of the Nationalist Party. 
All of these factors came to a head in January 1913, when the results of the December national elections were announced. The KMT, the Nationalist Party, had emerged as the majority party in government, and it became increasingly clear that Song Jiaren was to lead the party as prime minister. While waiting on a train from Shanghai to Beijing on March 20th, 1913, Song Jiaren was shot twice at close range and died two days later in hospital. While many believed Yuan was behind the attack, all those involved either disappeared or were killed off themselves, meaning that the trail ran cold and accusations were never proved. Yuan then launched an all-out military assault on the KMT troops, taking Nanjing from them with the help of his ally and Qing loyalist Jiang Xun. By September, the KMT were completely defeated. In October, Yuan forced Parliament to re-elect him as president for five years. In November, Sun Yat-sen left China for Japan, following Yuan's labelling of the KMT as a seditious organisation and banning them completely. In December, Yuan held a political conference with delegates from the central and local governments. By January of 1914, he had managed to convince Parliament to suspend the rights of legislators, while he himself ordered that Parliament be disbanded on the grounds that, quote, it was ruined so greatly by people with various political prejudices that mob tyranny nearly came into being. By February, all local and provincial governing bodies were abolished, and the central government came completely under the control of Yuan and his Beiyang warlords. In March... Yuan issued a new constitution, greatly limiting civil rights while strengthening central authority and expanding the rights of the president to the point where restricting him would have been impossible. By December, he had rewritten the constitution to state that the president could serve several 10-year terms consecutively. By mid-1915, rumours began to spread that Yuan had begun acting like the emperors of old, performing ancient rituals and even dressing like the emperor. In November, a special representative assembly of 1,993 members voted unanimously to make Yuan emperor. On January 1st, 1916, Yuan Shikai became the Hongxian emperor. So within a two-year period, Yuan Shikai had managed to consolidate his power with incredible speed. He continued to use force and military might as his main tool, and censored any critical voices in newspapers and other publications, although he did make some attempts to improve conditions around the country. His prison-building scheme saw attempts at improving the conditions for prisoners, as well as their moral reform. His education policies expanded free primary education to all boys, although the curriculum mainly revolved around Confucian teachings. He reviewed the penal system, expanding the Supreme Court system set up in the later years of the Qing, and looked to stamp out vices such as opium smoking. He tried to improve the native economy by encouraging large-scale irrigation projects and centralising the national currency. Many entrepreneurs took advantage of the First World War to build up fortunes by taking over functions previously run by foreign nationals who had returned to the West, allowing individuals to amass private wealth which could then be reinvested into national capitalist ventures. Despite all of this, Yuan's regime was far from watertight, however. His government was running a monthly deficit of 13 million yuan, about 1.3 million pounds, and taxes were failing to bring in nearly enough to cover central debt, meaning that Yuan took out an increasing number of loans from foreign countries to keep the country afloat. As it happened, China was also not the only one to take advantage of Western preoccupation with the First World War to make financially beneficial moves. 
Japan had sided with the Allies and declared war on Germany in 1914. They used this move as a pretext to attack the German concession in Shandong province and issued China with the 21 demands in January 1915, aimed at expanding Japanese control over the northeastern part of China. These demands included giving Japan control over all previously held German concessions in Shandong, as well as the South Manchurian Railway System and the Hanyuping Iron and Coal Works in central China. It also stipulated extraterritoriality in the Mongolia, which would allow Japan to extract natural resources from the region. It barred China from leasing any further concessions to other foreign powers, and it would have allowed for the involvement of Japanese ministers and economic advisers in northern Chinese politics. International outrage at these demands was mirrored by the Chinese public. Anti-Japanese rallies were held and large-scale boycotts of Japanese goods spread nationwide. Despite public dissent, however, Yuan felt that he had no choice but to agree to the demands, although he was able to alter some of the more extreme clauses. Yuan's popularity plummeted, which ironically was probably one of the main reasons he decided to push for complete control by becoming emperor. In his mind, the only way to secure the administrative unity of China was to reinstate the same formula that had been in place and fully functioning for millennia. However, Yuan's stint as emperor was not built to last. Despite his chief advisers, such as American political science professor Frank Goodnow, convincing Yuan that China needed a symbol of central power greater than that of president, Yuan's political allies quickly began to abandon him once he became emperor. One by one, provinces began to declare their independence from the central state. Although Yuan declared the new dynasty disbanded by March 1916, it was too late, and provinces continued to declare independence until it was clear that China was no longer a unified state. Yuan Shikai died on June 6, 1916, of health complications. Of course, China didn't just stop running on account of the death of Yuan Shikai. There were still those who were trying to keep China administratively unified, although not to much avail. In the central government, the new president appointed was Li Yuanhong, the same man who the revolutionaries had appointed as their reluctant leader at the beginning of the Xinhai Revolution. He immediately set out trying to reinstate the parliament disbanded by Yuan, while also dealing with calls from certain factions for China to join in the First World War. After about a year of holding things together, Li's term was cut short by another military coup, this time carried out by Qing loyalist Jiang Shun who had defeated Sun Yat-sen's KMT troops in Nanjing just a few years earlier. On the death of Yuan, Zhang had decided that the next best move would be to reinstate the Qing dynasty. So, in June 1917, he marched his troops into Beijing and actually managed to restore the last emperor Puyi for about a month. In July, forces led by rival generals, including former premier Duan Qirui, defeated Zhang's troops outside of Beijing. The first air raid in Chinese history also took place during this battle, when a bomb was dropped on the Forbidden City. Emperor Puyi was once again removed from the throne, though he continued to live in the Imperial Palace and receive a Western education until 1924. China's Republican dreams had been completely dashed, and the country was now entering the warlord era. The warlord period, which most people agree runs from about 1916 to roughly 1927 or 1928, 
is characterised by a few major factions vying for complete power on the one hand, and many local, less powerful warlords trying to govern what little territory they had on the other. These so-called warlords who now ran China came in a variety of different shapes and sizes, from former Qing loyalists to modern reformers on the one hand, and from wealthy and educated men to poor bandits running local gangs. There were few traits that united these men, except the fact that they all commanded personal armies, and that they all considered themselves nationalists who wanted to reunite the country, albeit under their own control. We should probably note that what remained of Sun's KMT formed the military government of the Republic of China in South China, with its capital in Guangzhou, but we'll be talking more about them in a later episode. At the central level, the Beiyang forces previously united under Yuan had split into several factions, each of which tried to assert their position in Beijing to take control of the entire country. The Juli, Fengtian and Anhui cliques frequently allied and fought with each other for dominance, allying with other factions and other warlords throughout the late 10s and early 1920s. These northern cliques fought amongst themselves, while several southern cliques such as the Sichuan and Guangdong cliques fought either amongst themselves or against each other for dominance in the region. Most cliques developed as a result of personal disagreements, leading to the development of hostile factions. The Jili clique, for example, can be said to have been started by Feng Guozhang, a high-ranking official and Beiyang officer who had served as a military governor of Jili and later Jiangsu, and who served as vice-premier of the republic in 1916 and then as president from 1917 to 1918. His clique formed as a result of resentment that many officials and officers felt against Premier Duan Chi Ri's policy of promoting his own protégés into positions of power. Many believed that this was an attempt by Duan to secure the country under his own rule. When Feng Guozhang stepped down from the presidency, the hostility to Duan only hardened, and his supporters became known as the Jili clique, while Duan's became known as the Anhui clique. The Fengtian clique was formed by Zhang Zuolin, a Manchurian of peasant background who climbed up the military ranks from enlisted soldier to leader of his own force. He used the chaos of the immediate post-revolutionary period to assert his position of authority in Fengtian, now Liaoning province, and then began to try and take control of the entire Manchurian region. He managed to gain a strong foothold throughout the entire region by making sure only those approved by him were appointed to top positions, although these connections remained somewhat loose and not totally loyal, hence the frequent infighting throughout the period. Each of these cliques not only suffered from infighting, but also constant switches in loyalty and political manoeuvring to ensure that no one other clique gained enough control to unite the entire country under their own banner. Wars were fought constantly throughout the period, partly because most warlords would allow the defeated party to return home unscathed, allowing them to recoup their losses and prepare for the next battle in the hopes that the same favour would be returned to them if they lost a battle in the future. Warlords were short-term thinkers, and though they wanted to reunite the country, the more immediate and pressing issues of where the next tax revenues were going to come from always took precedence over the long-term plans for the Chinese nation. Another example of this was their constant collusion with foreign powers, particularly with Japan. Both Duan of the Anhui clique and Jiang Zuolin of the Fengtian clique allied with Japanese backers for economic and military support to prop up their regimes, 
despite the fact that collusion with the Japanese was one of the main reasons Yuan Shikai's rule was brought to such an abrupt end. In a later episode, we'll be able to go into more detail as to how these cliques evolved throughout the 1920s and how new leaders emerged to replace old ones in a constantly shifting field of alliances. Away from the centre and from clique politics, a few notable warlords tried to run their limited territories according to their own principles, with varying degrees of success. The methods used varied from person to person, with some warlords emerging as almost shining examples of a virtuous ruler, while others used any means possible to secure their power and line their pockets. Some warlords promoted the growing of cash crops, such as opium, in order to sell for profit, thus reducing the amount of land available for food crops, leading to consistent famines. Some let their troops terrorise the people, seizing their food supplies, looting their goods and taking their draft animals. The large-scale issuance of unbacked currencies also led to inflation and devaluation of Chinese goods, creating a setback for the Chinese economy from which it would not recover for decades. A warlord named Yan Shishen ruled Shanxi province throughout the warlord period and was known as the model governor, who tried to introduce several progressive reforms during his tenure. He abolished footbinding, made improvements in women's education and tried to improve public health. He was well-educated, having attended military school in Japan and had been introduced to Western ideas and philosophies such as Christianities, which he combined with traditional Chinese ideas such as Confucianism to try and create his own perfect blend of moral rule. However, he was restricted by his ties with the local gentry, whose support he needed to run the province smoothly, and so any changes he did make were never as extensive as he would probably have otherwise planned. Many of the policies he backed personally were also seen as an invasion of privacy, such as his plans to enforce the ban of prostitution by close monitoring of marital relationships, and his early bird society that aimed to get everyone up and working by 6am. He was also restricted by his need to collect revenue through non-conventional means for the upkeep of his own army. Shanxi was one of the poorest and most underdeveloped regions of China, and like many other warlords, he resorted to imposing monopolies over local industries such as salt and flour. Feng Yushan, the son of an opium addict, was known as the Christian general, and he constantly switched sides to maintain his own position, but in general had a progressive outlook. He also abolished footbinding and banned opium smoking, and he encouraged afforestation and the building of infrastructure. He tried to fight corruption in Jili, but overall was unable to make a lasting impact on the administration of the region, due to his association with different cliques and his eventual siding with the KMT. What I hope these two examples showed was that it was particularly difficult for warlords who were trying to run a province without the help of any cliques, because even though they might be a progressive or a well-educated man with a huge army and lots of local support, a lack of funds and constantly shifting alliances and just the general atmosphere of war prevented people from being able to make any lasting impact or improve the lives of ordinary people at the time. Despite the overall failure of the central government to maintain authority, the early Republican period was not actually a complete failure and did manage to redeem itself in some respects. Several new central ministries that were set up in the late Qing continued to function, including the interior, foreign affairs, finance and industry and commerce ministries. Professional bureaus were set up throughout the provinces and attempts were made to standardise education throughout the country. 
Both were met with mixed success, but they still managed to survive well into the 1920s and were picked up by later governments. The constitution of 1912 also remained relatively intact. There remained a president, a vice president and a premier. There was a parliament, a cabinet and upper legislative house, although these were plagued with corruption throughout the period and the use of military force and coercion meant that they never really achieved anything resembling a representative form of government. Despite the bribery and scheming and even murders, the republican format survived two attempts to restore the monarchy, as well as a brief period of authoritarian dictatorship. The warlords were unable to overcome the core idea that had been fostered at the beginning of the 20th century, namely that nationalism and unity was more than just military might and could not be maintained by authoritarianism alone. The mandate of the people was also required to create a strong nation. At some level, the revolutionary's message had survived and the republican spirit was continued throughout the period. This spirit was also reflected in the cultural and intellectual production of the early republican period. As with many other times in Chinese history, a period of great political upheaval was accompanied by a flourishing of new ideas among society. Cities grew continuously in both population and size during this period, and the old walls of cities like Wuzhou and Changsha were demolished and suburbs established. New social groups emerged among new buildings, including a working class, a modern intelligentsia, and a new bourgeoisie. Bankers and industrialists, alongside merchants, managed to turn huge profits as the First World War opened China up to the rest of the world. Many of the new urban elites still emerged from the elite classes of old China, however, and merely increased their fortunes using new capitalist methods and social freedoms. Many of China's new businessmen and new intellectuals had been educated abroad, but they were still allied with the urban nobles and reformist elite of the late Qing era. Young intellectuals, with one foot in the traditional past and the other in the progressive future, became frustrated with their alienation from politics, and they expressed their discontent with China's social and political turmoil in their writing. The new literature published immediately after the revolution failed to capture the reformist, critical nature of the turn of the century and instead devolved into a sensationalist, overly sentimental, popular fiction derogatorily known as the Mandarin Duck and Butterfly literature. The reason it was known as Mandarin Duck and Butterflies was because of a common allusion that was used in many of these fictions that referred to couples as a pair of ducks or butterflies. These works appealed to the growing numbers of urban dwellers keen to escape from the rapid social and political changes that plagued them, whilst also having their experiences replicated in print. They dealt with themes such as free love and women's emancipation, as well as scandal fiction and knight-errant stories that coincided with the political turmoil of the warlord period. The overly sentimental style is frequently portrayed as a low point in the Chinese literary tradition and cannot really be identified as either modern or old in form or content. Though this type of fiction failed to espouse the radical modern ideals of the revolution, it did manage to pave the way for an entirely new genre of popular literature that began as a literary revolution in 1915 and that would continue to develop throughout the 1920s. This literary revolution was largely reliant and partially a result of the arrival of a new set of ideas and intellectual modes of thought in China during the early Republican period. 
Radical ideologies such as anarchism and socialism entered the country almost immediately after the revolution. They were first spread by radical groups and societies, such as the Conscience Society, who advocated the abolition of the family and the complete equality of the sexes in every facet of society. Their ideals reached utopic heights, and they called for the founding of a community where all things would be achieved through mutual aid and cooperation, and money would just no longer exist. A rapid spread of new ideas revolving around ideology and science led to the establishment of the New Culture Movement in 1915. It's often said to have begun with the publication of the magazine New Youth, or Xin Qingnian, which was founded by Chen Duxiu, a radical humanities professor who would later go on to become the founder of the Chinese Communist Party. Building on the ideas of the late Qing reformers and early Republican anarchists that preceded them, Writers in the New Youth aimed to continue the progressive ideological trend that seemed to be failing under the neoconservative traditionalist rule of Yuan Shikai and, later, many of the warlords. The magazine focused on advocating on behalf of China's youth, women, science and democracy, and looked for ways to overcome China's backwardness. It was through this magazine that many young radicals found their voice, including a 24-year-old Mao Zedong, who published his article, A Study of Physical Education, in 1917. In it, he argued that China's weakness stemmed from the weakness of its people, who had traditionally shunned physical activity in favour of flowing garments and slow gaits. China's people, he argued, should become more physically fit, able to leap on horseback and shoot at the same time, if they were going to survive in a modern age. Publications such as The New Youth were instrumental in spreading the message of the literary revolution. This literary revolution was pioneered by influential writers such as Hu Xu, who we'll be discussing in more detail in the next episode. He called for the old classical Wenyan style of writing to be replaced by Baihua, or vernacular writing. Wenyan, Hu Xu argued, was like writing in a dead language, whereas the vernacular was a living language and would allow the development of a new literature that was more representative of a modern China. In 1916, Hu Xu wrote a letter to Chen Duxiu, advocating eight new principles for the writing of literature, which were subsequently published, slightly reordered, in The New Youth. These principles were as follows. Avoid the use of classical allusions. Discard stale, time-worn literary phrases. Discard the parallel construction of sentences. Do not avoid using vernacular words and speech. Follow literary grammar. Do not write that you are sick or sad when you do not feel sick or sad. Do not imitate the writings of the ancients. What you write should reflect your own personality. What you write should have meaning or real substance. Some radicals actually went further than this saying that Husha's criticism of old literature was too mild and that all elitist forms and content should be done away with completely. Husha was too open-minded and perhaps too focused on the linguistic aspect rather than the content of new literature. Nevertheless, by 1921, Baihua, or the vernacular, had become the national language. These gradual changes in the intellectual and literary spheres in the early Republican period paved the way for a huge social movement to sweep through the entire country in 1919, changing Chinese society forever. 
The May 4th movement was a formative movement in China's journey towards modernization and critically saw the founding of arguably the most important political group in 20th century China, the Chinese Communist Party. In the next episode, we'll be looking at the May 4th movement in depth, looking at the causes, aims and outcomes of the movement in the cultural and political spheres and seeing how what was essentially a student protest came to be remembered as one of the most famous events in modern Chinese history. Thank you so much for listening, everyone, and I hope you join me for the next episode.